I'll be reading this morning from Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, you can turn there in your Bibles. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Let's pray. God, I do thank you again for your works and your ways um, in this world as well as in us individually. And Lord, we just want our eyes to be on you and our hearts to be strengthened in faith, that we would be those who walk, Lord, in confidence and in hope, in the midst of a fallen world that seems it's um, just going crazy. But you're in control, Lord, and we thank you, God, that you sustain this earth. It's always been held together by you and always will be. And we do want our eyes to be on you and not just the circumstances of this life. We thank you, God, for saving us as we simply place our faith in Jesus. And we thank you, God, for your promise to finish within us the work that you've begun. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Great to see all of you again. It's wonderful having last Sunday to have some testimonies, and I appreciated Benito and Stuart and Rachel all sharing. I just blessed um, through all three of them. It's always good to hear what God is doing in people's lives. We um, are in the book of Acts, if this is one of your first Sundays here, and been slowly wake, making our way through it. And in chapter 7, Stephen has just been um, on trial, basically, asked to give a defense, which he does not do. He's not really concerned about defending himself. He uses his opportunity to preach Christ and to show the significance of the Lord Jesus over the temple and over the law and all the things that the Jewish people were putting their confidence in, trying to point them to putting their confidence in Christ, only to result in him being stoned to death at the end of the chapter. And now in chapter 8, we're seeing the fallout of Stephen's death. And so, so far in Acts, the um, early believers were first warned to stop preaching Christ, and that didn't work. And so then a couple of them were flogged, and that didn't work. And so now they've killed Stephen, martyred him. So we've gone from warning to flogging to martyrdom, and now persecution. And so this is the first um, full-scale persecution of the early church, and it is by Jewish people against Jewish people. Now, I want to um, just point out something here at the outset of this chapter. It, it's not about persecution. Persecution is, is the ground for what's going to happen here, the impetus for it. But um, it's, the Lord really is taking the opportunity here to talk to us about individuals. And four individuals are going to be mentioned in this chapter. Saul, later known as Paul, and then Philip, and then Simon the sorcerer, and then the Ethiopian eunuch. So this chapter focuses on those four people. Now, this is important because when we're going through, uh, or society is going through a time of turmoil, and persecution like this is certainly a time of turmoil, it's real easy to get our eyes on the turmoil and all that's happening and forget or fail to see what God is doing in people's lives. I have a friend that sent me um, just this last week um, a book written by the, one of the chaplains that was assigned to the Marine Battalion that was first to invade Iraq from Kuwait. And it's a fascinating book. I'm only halfway through it. And this chaplain is talking about things that we never heard about in the media. All we heard about is the oil fields are on fire. The United States is moving into Iraq. We don't know what we're going to meet there. It could be weapons of mass destruction. It could be just total chaos and destruction. That's all we were hearing about. But in the midst of that, God was bringing many of those soldiers to faith in Christ. There was a revival going on in that battalion And this chaplain was writing about the opportunities he was having uh, and being encouraged to do so from right up on the very top to General Mattis on down to the second lieutenants who were encouraging these chaplains to get out there and talk to their soldiers about Jesus Christ. Amazing stuff. And many of those men were coming to faith in the Christ 
in the, in the midst of that. You don't hear about that. But, and that's what I appreciate so much about the Bible, is if we, if man had simply written this book, we would spend the entire time talking about the details of the persecution. Because that's where our mind goes, to the chaos. And that's why bad news sells, right? And we wouldn't be looking for the good news. What is God doing in the midst of the chaos? Because it just starts out and it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose. And that's where I would want to just say, okay, let's dig into this. What did it look like? Because I want to know. Don't you? I mean, how did the church, what did they actually experience and how did they respond to it? I mean, did they pack up all their bags? Did they take all their photo albums with them? You know, what did they do? Where did they go? We're not told. We had, there's just, there, were per, there was persecution. Now let's get our eyes off the persecution and onto what God was doing in the midst of the persecution. And the focus is on individual people and what God is doing in their lives. That's where our focus should be. You can't turn on the news even this morning. I turned on the news while I was ironing my slacks, and, and it's all about the, the, um, all the stuff that's going on that happened last night, all the rioting taking place in major cities all over the United States. But God's doing something. I don't know what it is, but the news is not going to talk about the people who are crying out to Jesus, the people who are coming to faith in Christ. The news is never going to talk about that. But God is doing something. And our prayer as the people of God ought to be for those individuals who are part of those riots, the individuals who are suffering because of those riots, that God would work here in individuals' lives. And Acts chapter 8 is about the individuals. Now, I, if I were a PowerPoint guy, this is a Sunday I would use it. But I'm not a PowerPoint guy. So I drew up, drew up, I can't even talk. Good thing I'm not a PowerPoint guy because I can't use technology either. Now, there is, when you go to a seminary, you learn all kinds of useless things, okay? But few things are actually useful. And, and I actually first was introduced to this in just my study when I was in Bible college. And, and it is the, the, the fact, it's, it's not just a theory, that throughout the Bible, but especially in the New Testament, that there are times when an author would use what is called a chiastic pattern to his writing. And chiastic from the Greek letter chi, which is X, okay? We would call an X, but it's, it's the Greek letter chi. And the point is, is that they would, would trace their thought in the pattern of an X, which is, which is overstated, okay? Now, here's an X that I drew up here, okay? Those of you on the front rows, you can see this a little better. Now, half of it is a dotted, is dotted line. Two of the axes, two of the other legs are dotted line. The other two are solid line. So ignore the dotted line, okay? Because the chiastic pattern is not a full X. It's just, it's just one leg and the other leg down, okay? So it's half an X. Now, the point to a chiastic pattern, and I'm telling you this because I see a chiastic pattern in this chapter, and it really, for me, helps to understand what God is doing here and how to interpret it. So the point of the chiastic pattern is this, okay? So it moves in the line from the top to the bottom. So there's a linear thought. Greek is, is very linear, okay? You know, one, two, three, four, linear. So you have point one, point two, point three, point four, all right? But the emphasis is not on point one or point four. The emphasis is actually in the middle at points two and three. Now, it's not always four. It can be six. It can be eight. The, book, the entire book of Philippians is written in a chiastic pattern, okay? And so you can see where the emphasis is at the middle, where it comes together, all right? And so there is a linear flow, but there's also parallelism, sometimes comparison, sometimes contrast between the first point and the last point. The second point and, and the, in this case, four, the first and the fourth, the second and the third. If it was six points, it'd be the first and the sixth, the second and the fifth, the third and the fourth. Follow me? And so that helps with this, because when I look through these four people, four people, okay, I got Saul, Philip, Simon, 
the Ethiopian. Okay? Well, not only is there, are we supposed to see progression from Saul to Philip to Simon to Ethiopian, and there is progression. For example, probably the clearest part of this is Paul, or Saul, was a hardcore Jew. Okay? According to what he says in Philippians 3, he says, according to the law, a Pharisee. Okay, that's Paul, first guy. Second guy that's introduced is um, Philip. Philip was also a Jew, but he was not a hardcore Pharisee type of Jew like Paul. He was a Hellenist Jew. And so they were looked down on a little bit by the hardcore Pharisee type Jews like Paul. So you go from hardcore Jew Paul, Saul, to more of a moderate Jew, Philip. And then the next guy that's introduced is Simon. Well, Simon is half Jew, half Gentile. He's a Samaritan. And then the last guy has got no Jewish blood at all. He's Ethiopian. He's a Gentile. So you go from Jew, full Jew, but not hardcore Jew, half Jew, Gentile. So you can see the linear progression. And this fits with what God was saying back in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus says that you're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so now we're seeing that progression, the linear part. But we also see that there seems to be a comparison contrast between Saul, the first guy that's introduced, and what do we know about Saul? He hates the preaching of Jesus. He is hard-hearted, not just hardcore Jew, he is hard-hearted. And the last guy that's introduced, the Ethiopian, what do we know about him? Man, he's seeking after God. He's open-hearted. He's humble. He's teachable. You couldn't teach Paul anything, right, at this point in his life. He will not listen. He's heard it, and he doesn't want to hear it. And you got the Ethiopian down there in his chariot who's hearing it and doesn't know what he's hearing, and he wants help. Couldn't be a bigger contrast between Saul, the first guy, and, and the Ethiopian, the last guy. But that helps, because if this is a chiastic pattern then there is a real contrast not only between Saul and the Ethiopian, but between Philip and Simon the sorcerer. And I think, well, jumping ahead a little bit, but I think, didn't used to think this, but I think Simon's a believer. Okay? And you have a contrast between Philip, a believer who is pure-hearted and is preaching Jesus. And you have Simon, who is a believer who is carnal, impure in his heart, and he's preaching himself. So a contrast between Paul, or Saul, in the Ethiopian, and a contrast between Philip and Simon. Okay, So that's how I see this, and it helps me to understand what's going on with Simon, because he's the hard guy to figure out here in the first part of this chapter. All right, so Saul is in agreement, wholehearted agreement, with killing Stephen. He's going to live to regret that, right? I mean, he's going he's to testify about this later, and he, he never gets over it. I mean, for the rest of his life, he, he, he feels ashamed of this day when he, at this point, and he'll tell us later, he says, I serve God with a pure conscience. He says, and with the righteousness that was found in the law, he says, I was blameless. And with a clear conscience, he stood there and gave hearty agreement with killing Stephen. It was a murder. And, he, and, and Saul sees no problem whatsoever with it. And that will plague him for the rest of his life. What was I thinking? But he's going to wake up, as we know. And everything's going to change, and he's going to become one of the persecuted instead of one of the persecutors. So a great persecution arose against the church. And most of the Christians were, stat- were scattered. We know not all of them. The 12 apostles weren't forced out of Jerusalem. Why didn't they leave? You know, they, everybody else was leaving. Well, apparently it wasn't all Christians, but it's probably the focus of the persecution was likely on the Hellenist Christians. We know that there are still many Christians behind because in Paul's later ministry, he's going to be taking up a collection for the, for the famine relief of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so it seems that these 12 apostles stayed behind because that new body of believers there in Jerusalem needed leadership. They needed help. 
And so they stayed behind, I would assume, to help disciple and nurture those new believers who were still in Jerusalem. We're told this about Saul in verse 3. He began ravaging the church. This is a very strong word. Um, and it's, it was sometimes used of a wild hog getting into a vineyard and destroying the whole vineyard. And that's what is the mindset of Saul. He wants to destroy this new fledging church. He just wants to wipe it out. And so that's what he's doing. He has one intention. He's being moved by Satan, though he doesn't even know it. And it is stamp out, destroy these Christians. Is he successful? No. We had a grass fire at his hill a couple of summers ago. It was because Chase Hill was taking a smoke break and um, <laughs> almost burned down the whole property. Is Chase here today? Where's Chase? See, he's missing out. Okay, I'm talking about him. He always wants me to talk about him. Anyway, and so we all had to, all, all hands on deck, we all had to run and, and try and get this grass fire out. It was a big deal. Um, so Levi was out there with the backhoe, you know, client, trying to clear everything out. And, and the rest of us were out there, you know, trying to, you know, swap the fire with whatever we could. And, and, and I think the first thing I grabbed was a broom. Well, I found out real quick. You cannot put out a grass fire with a broom. All you do is you make more grass fire because you hit the thing and go, wow, I just made 10 more little fires out there. Okay? So that's how persecution is. I mean, we see it and we go, disaster. Okay? And if we knew a Saul in our life, we would all be going, oh my, what are we going to do? Okay? Because this guy has all the authority of Jerusalem behind him. It looks like a big deal. The church can't survive. This is a broom to a grass fire. And all that happens in God's economy is that God is using this insane man who is out of his mind and rage and hatred to do what God wanted to be done all the time. And that's get the word out there. And so he is just a broom to a fire. And now it is just spreading everywhere. And so these new Christians, to their credit, we aren't told whether they were leaving Jerusalem crying and what are we going to do? We're never going to be able to come back. And, you know, nothing of that. All we're told is, is that they went out, verse 4, therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Good for you. You know it had to eat them up, right? Where are we going to go? How are we going to make a living? Where are we going to live? How am I going to take care of my kids? Legitimate questions. And all we're told, you know they had those same questions. But all we're told is they went about preaching the word. Wow. That's miraculous. That in itself says that this is not just an organized movement of men. This is an organism that God has birthed and God is doing something here in people's lives. That in the most horrendous circumstances that you could think of, they're leaving preaching Christ. Wow. And so then we're introduced to Philip. We already told about him before, where he was one of the seven that was appointed to take care of the widows and their need. And it says that Philip went down to the, um, to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Again, wow. I mean, why Samaria? I, I, I believe God led him there. And there's no prejudice in him. And this is where, again, it was helpful that he was just a moderate Jew, as it were. Fully Jew in terms of race, but moderate in terms of his thinking, as chapter 7 showed us. He's not focused on the temple. He's not focused on Moses. He's not focused on the law, like the regular Jews were. He, he sees a bigger picture here. And he sees that God has always wanted the earth to come to him. He just said that in Acts chapter 7. That God's been working in Mesopotamia. God was working in the wilderness. God was working in Egypt. He's just preached that. Well, now preacher, follow up and, and, and live what you've just been preaching. So he just said, not, not Stephen did, not Philip, but Philip's in hearty agreement with all this, the same mindset. Philip's going, I heard what Stephen said. I know I believe this. And he goes, if God is a God of the world, then right next door, didn't Jesus say something about Samaria? And so he goes, got to leave Jerusalem. I just go next door. And he goes down to Samaria, 
and he is welcomed. Wonder why? Maybe because these Samaritans have ever since their existence, and how, what was the start of their existence? Assyria came and wiped out the northern tribes of Israel and took them captive. And Assyria brought these pagans in to populate Israel. Well, they can't, weren't doing a very good job because God didn't like all these pagans there, and so God was using lions and other things to, to, to bring these Assyrians to faith. And so the upper guys of Assyria, they recognized they need to have some Jews go back and teach the Assyrians how to fear God. And so now you've got this mixed multitude of people, these pagans who are now mixed marrying with the few Jews that were there, and you've got these people that are half Jew, half Gentile, with their own religion. They only believed that the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, were inspired. They didn't accept any of the prophets, didn't accept Psalms or Proverbs, just the Pentateuch. They don't believe the temple in Jerusalem is, is right. They think that the temple ought to be at Mount Gerizim, which happened to be in Samaria, because Gerizim is where when Joshua came across into Canaan and he read from the law and he read and he had six of the tribes on Mount Ebal and six of the tribes on Mount Gerizim and Mount Gerizim was the mountain of blessing. And they said, well, this is where the, if this is the mountain of blessing, this is where the temple ought to be. This is what the woman at the well in John chapter 4 was quizzing Jesus about. Our people say worship God in this place. Your people say worship God in Jerusalem. Which one is right? And so they have this false religion. They've been treated as outcasts. They've been persecuted. They've been disdained. And guess who comes to them? Somebody who's being persecuted. Somebody who's being treated as an outcast. Somebody who's being disdained. And they hear him. You ever wonder why God lets us go through some of the things we go through? To give us a platform and an opportunity and even the right to speak into the lives of other people who are going through similar things. God doesn't waste anything in our lives. And so all this stuff now that's happening to Philip gives him an opportunity to speak into the lives of the Samaritans. And they listen to him. And many of them get saved. What was he preaching? Just so simple. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And they heard. What an exciting time. He's all by himself. But word spreads. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. In the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a certain man, this is where Simon is introduced to us. A certain man named Simon who, was, who formerly was practicing magic in the city. And astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And this is somebody. And I don't know where he got his powers, if it's faked or if it's demonic. It's not said. I kind of think it's probably demonic. But we know that his motivation is totally selfish. He actually wanted people to refer to him as the great power of God. Now, that is an ego on display, right? I mean, we, man, that's an ego. What do we call you? Well, just call me the great power of God. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, this is an amazing guy. He is totally stuck on himself, full of himself, promoting himself, but he's doing all these powers. Now, what does it say about him? Verse 11, and they were giving attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. They knew this guy well. And these are people who are ripe and ready for this kind of deception. Why? Because of the false religion. Because they were only looking at five books in the Bible and they weren't taking the whole counsel of God. Because of this false temple that they have. These are people who are oriented toward deception and darkness. So no wonder... Simon the sorcerer has such a 
field day here with these people. Verse 12. But when they, when they, the city, the crowd that had been calling Simon the great power of God, when they all were turning to Jesus, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And Simon's standing back there going, there goes my money. There goes my crowd. There goes all the people calling me the great power of God. And Simon wasn't upset. See, I think this is one of the indicators to me now. Because I, I mean, you get out, most commentaries will say Simon never became a Christian. Okay? Most of them say that. But there are a few really good commentaries out there that say not so fast. Okay? Not so fast. What does it say? And Simon, verse 13, himself believed. If that's the only statement we had about him in the scripture, we would have no reason to question this man's faith. Simon himself believed, just like all the others, is the point. What does it take to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And Simon believed. Okay? But we, and I don't know why, I do have my suspicions why, but we, when somebody places their faith in Christ, if we don't see an immediate, drastic, 180-degree turnaround, we go, not so sure they're saved. Maybe their repentance wasn't genuine. Maybe they need to make some more confession for their sin. And I'm going, are we Catholic? Really? The scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Period. End of story. And this man, the scripture says, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. How much more clear could it be? But yes, his life is still a mess. His thinking is not 100% right after he gets saved. He is not a Philip, okay? But that doesn't mean he's not a Christian because he's not a Philip. I'm not there. I used to be there thinking, there's no way Simon could be saved. But I'm not there anymore. Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he believed, he was baptized, which doesn't mean that he was saved, because you can be baptized and not be a Christian. We understand that, okay? But it means he believed and he is wanting to give evidence to his faith. Just like the others were being baptized after they got saved, Simon is also wanting to give evidence to his faith. And third thing, he continued on with Philip. Now, let me point out the contrast to other people in Acts who were like Simon and who were making lots of money off of what they were falsely teaching others like the silversmith coming up in the later chapters of Acts, who had been making tons of money making gods, little idols, to their god Diana or Artemis later on in Acts. And all of his business goes away when the people start turning to God and not buying his idols anymore. So what does he do? He's going to instigate a riot and have all the people in the city want to just kill Paul and his companions right on the spot because he was losing money. That's not Simon. Simon has lost everything. The people are all turning to Jesus. And we see no negative response from Simon. He's following Peter, not saying, what are you doing? I'm the great power of God. What are you doing? No. This man recognizes immediately there's a greater power than himself. And it says he believed. He recognizes the greater power. He does not turn against Philip. He begins to follow Philip. So far, I don't see any reason to question this man's salvation. And he was amazed at all the miracles that he was seeing. Who wouldn't be, right? Christians today are amazed when they, you know, and we flock to churches that focus on miracles because we, we're amazed at them. 
And this verse 13 is interesting for another reason. If, if, if we didn't know the previous verses, and I think that Luke has written verse 13 for this reason, we would say that he believed and then saw miracles. That's how 13 lays it out. He believed, he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and he observed signs and great miracles. Okay? So this is not a guy, according to verse 13, who's just awed by the miracles. This is a guy who's believed first and then saw miracles, according to verse 13. Now, verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Now, God is doing, again, God is at work. Not just in Samaria, but God is at work in Peter and John. There's a place back in the, in the, in the Gospels where John wants to call down fire from heaven and destroy a city of Samaria. <laughs> and, and now they're going, really? The Samaritans have become Christians? And they're going down there not just to check out if it's really true or not. Apparently, they, they immediately believed it, and they're rejoicing. But they've also heard they haven't received the Holy Spirit. And so why do they go down there? Verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So they didn't just go down there to be inquisitors. Okay? Is this really true? Can a Samaritan really become a Christian? That's not said. See, we think that. And I read commentaries that say they went down there to check out if this was legitimate. That's not what's in the text. There's nothing in the text that says that Peter and John questioned whether this was real or not. It says they went down there to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. So they believed that Philip had preached Christ and these people had believed in Jesus. And they went down there to minister to those people. And so they went down. And they prayed for them that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them, and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is a theological conundrum here, because that doesn't happen today. Okay, just to be clear, and we're going to be clear on this as we go through the book of Acts. Early in Acts... When a person received, placed his faith in Christ, he did not immediately have Christ come to live in him. Okay? There was a delay. And so we know, for example, in chapter 1 of Acts, that those 11 disciples at that point were truly believers in Jesus Christ. We know that from John chapter 14, where Jesus says, If I leave, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I leave, I will come again and receive you to myself. It is clear those men knew Jesus, and if they had died at that point, they would have been with Jesus in heaven. Okay? They're saved. But they did not yet have the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. That happens in Acts chapter 1. They didn't have to pray for that. They just had to wait. And they waited, and God sent the Holy Spirit. Now... Now we're here in chapter 8, and it's no longer the Jewish people. It's Samaritans, half Jew, half Gentile. And there was deep, deep prejudice in the minds of most Jews against the Samaritans. If they had received the Holy Spirit immediately upon believing in Jesus Christ, as you and I did, okay, the moment you place your faith in Christ according to the epistles, that is when Christ comes to live in you, where the Holy Spirit is sent to indwell you. So, so much so is that true. You never have to pray to receive the Holy Spirit. You never have to ask for a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. The scripture says in Romans chapter 8 that if you do not have the Holy Spirit, then you do not belong to Jesus. Okay? It's just a matter of you. Either you do or you don't. And when you place your faith in Christ at that moment, you are baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit. There is one Lord, one faith, one spirit, one baptism. Okay, what Paul tells us in Ephesians. And so that that moment for us is instantaneous. You believe in Jesus Christ and, and the Spirit of God comes to live in you. It wasn't that way here in Acts chapter 8. 
And it seems to be because God is wanting the Jewish people to know. He's not doing one work with the Jewish people and another work with the Samaritans. It's one God, one work, one body. Because we are so oriented toward prejudice and division. And God is wanting this early church to understand there's only one church, folks. His church. And we can put all kinds of labels, Presbyterian and Methodist and all the things that you can come up with, right? But God says, I've got one church, one body. It's not Bernie Bible Church. God's got a body that is much bigger than this church and transcends all the different kinds of of denominations that we can think of. There's over a thousand of them. God has one body, not a thousand bodies. Now, we recognize that each local church is also called a temple of God, just as each individual is called a temple of God. But the emphasis here is that God has one universal church in this world. And Samaritans are as much a part of it as Jews are. And Gentiles are as much a part of it as anybody else is. So for that reason, it seems that God says, because I understand how how thick-headed people can be and how deep their prejudices can be, God says, I'm not going to give the Holy Spirit immediately when these Samaritans believe. I want Peter and John to come down and be part of the process so that now everybody can see it's one work, one body. Drop your prejudices. They have no place in the body of Christ. Well, Simon sees this. He's impressed. Who wouldn't be? Come on, let's be real. I mean, don't, and he said, well, he's impressed because he's an unbeliever. I'm a Christian, and I'm impressed when I read this, right? I mean, this would be amazing. And it says, and we, now, the, the text, to be careful with the text, doesn't even tell us whether Simon has yet received the Holy Spirit when we get to verse 18. He's watching these guys, Peter and John, pray and place their hands on people, and he's watching them receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what was he seeing? We aren't told. It doesn't say that they were seeing flames of fire, as in Acts chapter 1. They weren't hearing a mighty rushing wind, Acts chapter 1. They, it's not said that they were speaking in tongues. None of that is mentioned here. So we don't know what Philip, or I'm sorry, what Simon was seeing. We don't know. But something was happening where he could tell the Holy Spirit is being given to these people. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Not good, Simon. (laughs) Really bad. Apparently, and I didn't know this because I'm ignorant, um, we have a word now called simony, that when a person offers money, to buy an office, especially an ecclesiastical office, a church office, we call it simony. And it's taken from Simon, that he was the first example of somebody who used money to try and purchase a power or an office or influence. So when people use their money to purchase influence, we call it simony. Okay, Maybe you didn't know that either. And now when Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the same guy who wanted people to call him the the greatest power, the, the great power of God. Okay, So that flesh tendency has not been eradicated. He likes attention. Okay? Now, when you become a Christian, whatever the tendencies of your flesh were before you were a Christian, don't change. They are not eradicated. Okay? What were your flesh tendencies before you became a Christian? Did you like to be recognized in public? To be applauded in public? Well, guess what? You probably still like it after you're saved. Simon liked it before he was saved, and Simon's thinking, I'd kind of still like to have that attention. What is it? I mean, 
I was an introvert before I was saved, and guess what? I was introverted after I was saved. That didn't mean I don't like people or that I don't like talking about Jesus. But my basic flesh tendencies have not changed. Well, I'm 63 years old now, and guess what? My basic flesh tendencies have still not changed. The flesh doesn't change, okay? So what your flesh was before you're saved is what your flesh will be like after you're saved. So don't be too hard here on Simon. I think you have a baby Christian who is now showing the same flesh tendencies that he showed before he was saved. That's all. And so he doesn't even recognize how wrong this is of what he's saying. It's like I remember, you know, in college one time, uh, I read a quote by D.L. Moody. And and, and D.L. Moody's quote was, the world has yet to see what God can do through one life totally yielded to him. That's a great quote. And I think it's probably true. Other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a life totally yielded to God, the world has never seen another human life totally yielded to God. So I read that quote, and I can remember being, you know, at a campfire in college with, with some of my, you know, buddies and all, and we were going around, and we were talking, and, 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 and we were just talking, you know, what, you know, I don't remember what the conversation was about, but somehow it got to what, you know, and I, and I, and I said, you know, that quote. And I said, that really impressed me. And, then, and I thought very humbly before those guys, I wasn't trying to boast or anything, I said, I want to be that person. Now, all these years later, I'm going, bah! <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> and it's not that it was a bad motivation or a bad ambition in itself, but now I look back and I go, it was totally about me. You know, I didn't even see it. I want to be the first man who's been totally yielded to God so that the world can see what God can do with a man. You know what I want now? I just want Jesus, and I want to die faithful. And if God uses me, bonus. That's the cherry on top. If he doesn't, I don't care like I used to. I'm more concerned with just finishing well, dying in the faith, than whether or not God ever uses me. Because I realize that's the issue, isn't it? God is going to use those who abide in Christ, period. I don't have to pray about God using me. If I abide in Jesus, God's going to use me. That's what Scripture says. The question is whether I'm going to continue to believe throughout life. And so, God, I am sorry for the pride of my heart. But see, that's the flesh. And the flesh can be look so spiritual. But behind it is that selfish ambition. He was a selfishly ambitious man before he was saved. And Simon is a selfishly ambitious man after he was saved. Well, you can't be selfishly ambitious and be a Christian. <laughs> oh, my word. I hope you're not thinking that. Okay, listen to what James tells us. James chapter 3 and chapter 4. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Simon had selfish ambition in his heart. And so can a Christian. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. The wisdom... This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. He's speaking to Christians. So why should I write off Simon as being lost when I see selfish ambition in a brand new Christian's heart? It's in all of us. In chapter 4, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Once again, 
selfish ambition. Any of you not had your prayers answered? I don't always get my prayers answered. And sometimes it's because I want to satisfy my own pleasures. And I'm not praying with God's agenda in mind. I'm praying with my agenda in mind. And God says, I've got something higher than your pleasures. Your pleasures are not the first thing. I can't help but wonder, maybe that's one of the things God's doing right now in our country. Because as it looks like our world's falling apart and we have to even wonder if we're doing the wrong thing by coming to church on Sunday morning, and you can't even go out to eat without wondering if you have to have a mask with you or not. I mean, it is craziness where we're living today and the stuff that's going on. Craziness. Are we going to have plexiglass between us forever now? You can't, I, I can't even hear the people. I'm thinking, I'm really going to have to put my hearing aids in and crank them all the way up because I can't hear people talking through mask and plexiglass. Is this how life is going to be from now on? And we're just crazy times, and I go, God, this doesn't please me. I don't like it. So what? And, and we're praying, God, in essence, get rid of the plexiglass. It's not pleasing me. And we're not thinking what God is after. Maybe God's wanting people to see the separation that exists between not just people, but between man and God. And maybe this is a great opportunity to talk about how we've got barriers between us and God. And it's not a virus, it's sin. I don't know. But man, there are opportunities around us to preach Jesus in the midst of of times that are not pleasing to us. And what could be more unpleasing than persecution? But it's an opportunity to proclaim Christ. So Simon Peter, I'm sorry, not Simon Peter, Simon the sorcerer, you shouldn't be wanting to have the, the power to give the Holy Spirit so that you can get credit. And man, Peter hammers him. Oh, scary. I wonder if Peter was expecting him just to drop dead. I mean, what he said to Ananias and Sapphira wasn't any more harsh than what he's saying here to Peter, I mean, to to Simon. You have verse 20, and we're almost done. I won't go through the whole chapter. Verse 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now, I read one commentary here, very respected conservative commentary, when actually they said, they, they pointed and they said, Philip's translation of the New Testament. Philip's is a paraphrase. And Philip translates this and says, may your money go to hell with you. Ooh. Is, is Peter really telling Simon to go to hell? No, I don't believe that. Okay. I think Philip's translation got that wrong. May your money perish with you. Well, money doesn't go to hell. Okay? Hell is not mentioned here. That is a huge conjecture, inference. The word perish is the same word that later is translated in Acts as ruin. And it doesn't have to be spiritual ruin. It doesn't have to be losing your salvation ruin, which we don't believe can happen. It can simply be die. Like he expected Ananias and Sapphira to die. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. But he had believed. Ananias' and Sapphira's heart was also not right before God. You can be a Christian and have a heart that is not right before God. Right? Okay, And again, I think the contrast here is between Philip, a God-fearing, pure-hearted, Jesus-preaching Christian, and Simon, a Christian who is a brand-new believer, carnal in his faith, and who is still proclaiming himself. Just as, as Saul is a contrast to the Ethiopian eunuch, I think 
And they're both unbelievers. Ethiopian Eupin's going to get saved, but they've introduced as unbelievers, and I believe that, that, that um, Philip and Simon are being introduced to us as Christians, and you have a contrast between two unbelievers, and you have a contrast between two Christians. Okay? A spirit-filled, mature Christian and an immature, fleshly-oriented Christian. Okay? That's how I'm seeing this. Your heart is not right. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, this intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Well, would you ever say to an unbeliever, pray to the Lord and, if possible, you'll be forgiven? No. We never say that because it's not a possibility. It's a certainty, right? Pray to the Lord, place your faith in Christ, and you will be saved. There's not, that's not an if statement. That is an absolute statement. But this may be that of, you deserve to die. But maybe God will spare your life. It's not about his salvation. It's about whether or not he's going to be struck down over this sin. And, again, continuing, he's not done. I mean, Peter's hammering it. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. What did he say about Ananias and Sapphira? That's pretty strong language. Ananias and Sapphira, why has Satan filled your hearts? That's pretty strong language too. I believe a Christian can be in the gall of bitterness. Way too many are. Their life is ruled by bitterness. And I believe a Christian can be in the bondage of iniquity. Way too many Christians are enslaved to sin. You can be a slave to sin and be a believer in Jesus Christ. You can be in the bondage of bitterness and be a Christian, a child of God. And Simon answered and said, and I think you see humility here. Pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come to me. Now, I would have, I would have preferred him to say, Peter, you're right, and I repent. I would have preferred that. But again, I would have preferred for him never to ask for the privilege of being able to buy the power to give the Holy Spirit. We're just seeing a man. This is Scripture. Scripture just tells us the truth. And maybe it's not a perfect prayer. Maybe it's not a perfect expression of repentance. But how many times have people come and apologized to you and didn't make a perfect apology? Do you accept it? Or do you say, no, you didn't use the right words. You use sorry instead of I apologize. Give me a break. God looks at the heart. And sometimes we should too. And when somebody comes, I know we can't see the heart as God does. Don't misunderstand me. But when somebody comes, and, and we can see they're broken, they're contrite. But maybe the words aren't exactly what we were hoping to get. Accept it. Don't hold over them. You didn't give that apology exactly the way it was supposed to be given. So what? Maybe Simon didn't say it exactly the way we would have wanted but is this a bad thing? Would you pray for me? Who can fault that? Would you pray for me? You've just hammered me. And see, this must have, I mean, if I had been Peter at this point, it would have stopped me in my tracks. I've had this experience where I have just dropped the hammer on some student at his hill. Okay, and I'm, and there have been those one or two occasions when they've, They haven't bowed up in response. They've just said, would you pray for me? And I've been so mad, I'm thinking, pray. That's the last thing I want to do right now, right? (laughs) I want to chew you out some more. Would you pray for me? It changes me, right? I can be absolutely right in everything I said. I think Peter was right in everything he said. But now I I wonder if God's using Simon to just stop Peter in his tracks. Just shut up for a little bit, Peter. Who's playing Holy Spirit now? Right? He wants the power to give the Spirit, and you're going a little, you're dropping, you're being a little too heavy-handed here if you continue on this track. 
And, there's, and this man is saying, would you pray for me? And that's the end of the story. We don't know whether Peter prayed for him or not. I kind of think he probably did. I mean, how can you refuse that? Long and short of it is, I think there's a, a flow from point person one, two, three, and four, but I think there's also a comparison and contrast going on between the first guy and the fourth guy and the second guy and the third guy. And the second guy here is Philip and the third guy is Simon. And looking at it that way, I come to the conclusion Simon was saved. But he was immature and he was messing up, just like all of us, right? Sometimes we're full of selfish ambition. Admit it. That's what the spirit of competition is. Every year, I am asked by the district superintendent of Evangelical Free Church for America to fill out a survey on what's happening at Bernie Bible Church. I used to do it. Last year, I did half of it and stopped. And I must have had a dozen phone calls and emails saying, please finish the survey. This year, I have not done it again. And I've had the, the district superintendent himself write me and say, Charlie, you're the only one in the district who hasn't done it. Please do it. It's important to us. It's just a survey. I don't like it. Because it wants to know how many people got saved. It wants to know how many people got baptized. It wants to know whether our attendance is going up or going down. It wants to know how many people are being served for communion. Numbers. Whose business is it? And so I'm a bit of a nonconformist and a rebellion, rebellion, rebel, I know. But I, I don't like going through it and thinking about things that I never give a moment's thought to. Now, sometimes I do. I'm not perfect, okay? And, I, and it, 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 who doesn't notice when, it's, when the room's full and when the room's empty, right? You can't, you can't help but notice. But that's not where I want my attention to be. Sometimes God grows a church. Sometimes God decreases a church. God causes the growth. Do I really want to be charting that? Do I want somebody else out there charting what's going on in terms of how many people are coming to a church? Is that what God means by I cause growth? Is that the kind of growth that God's even talking about? I don't believe that. So I don't fill out the survey. And it's a real bummer to somebody out there, you know, who's survey-oriented. Live with it, I'm saying, you know, because I'm not going to do your survey. I'm sorry. But we have here, again, selfish ambition, is my, in my point, is in all of us. And God's at work in all of us. He's not finished. And as I look at this chapter, and we'll get to the rest of it next week, um, I'm encouraged. It encourages me to think that Simon was a believer because I can see myself in Simon. I hope he's a Christian. <laughs> it encourages me to see God's emphasis on individuals in the midst of a chaotic time. I want to be that kind of person who sees what God sees and is encouraged and hopeful even when life doesn't please me the way that it's going right now. It's okay. Is God at work? He is. Is God doing things that none of us can see? He is. And I can continue to believe because my trust is in Him. And if things are never the same, we live with plexiglass between us for the rest of our lives, that's okay. God is at work. And I want to believe in Him and not get my pleasure or disappointment in life based upon circumstances that change. Amen? And I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for the example here of Philip especially. In chaotic times, he preached Jesus, proclaimed Christ. And not just Philip, 
But all these believers, Lord, as they were scattered away from their homes, their businesses, their livelihoods, into lives of uncertainty for them, that they went about preaching, proclaiming Christ and his word. I pray that we'll be the same. And if we have to wear a mask, Lord, that we would be able, people would be able to see a smile in our eyes if they can't see it on our lips. And that we would still, Lord, make the effort to proclaim Jesus with our words and with our actions. And I do thank you, God, that you are bigger than even our hearts, which are not always right with you. Thank you for your patience, your long-suffering, for your willingness to forgive, and that we can come to you, God. Thank you that you rebuke us, you correct us, you use your word, God, to do that, as well as other believers. I pray our hearts would be humble and teachable when those rebukes come, and that we would turn to you. And we do thank you for the cleansing power of Christ's blood over each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.